So my name is Cody, and I'm a grumbler. I don't like that I'm a grumbler. I don't want to be a grumbler. I don't want to be known as a grumbler, but I'm a grumbler. I find true about myself that I can turn negative really quick on something. Anybody else like this? That if I have an idea and everybody shoots down my idea and goes with another idea, there might be a part of me, this is awful to admit, that kind of wants their idea to bomb a little bit. <laughs> so that I can say, even if it's in my own heart, I tried to tell you, I tried to tell you, that if someone comes and is critical, that my, in my heart, my instinct, my intuition is to begin to complain. It's to revolt against that person. It's to think, who do you think that you are? It's to grumble, right? In fact, what I find true is that in my grumbling, I can even begin to impugn the very character of God. Let me give you an example. So two weeks ago, today, I wake up, alarm goes off. I get up pretty early on Sundays to kind of get ready to preach and all those kinds of things. And, I, and uh, the alarm goes off and I can't sit up in the bed. Like I can't move, y'all. And, I come, and, and I'm just, it's like someone has put a knife in my back. And so I think, oh, it's no big deal. I worked in the yard yesterday. I just pulled the muscles, something like that. And I, Megan's putting on my shoes and tying my shoes for me. Boy, that, that'll really humble you quick. And, and I get, well, another day goes by and I still can't move. And another day and another day and the whole week goes by and I'm no better. So I go to the doctor, right? And, and do, do you ever feel like you're the person that beats all odds and not in a good way? Like, you're the person where people say, well, the odds of that happen are one in a million. I'm the one, you know? So I go to the doctor and get an MRI and turns out, lucky me, I have a slip disc and I have a bulging disc and it's pressing down on the nerves in my back and I got like shooting pains like going down in my legs, right? Yeah, that's a blessing, 33. And my reaction to that is, God, how could you? God, how could you? Do, who do you think you are? Like, I don't deserve this. I haven't earned this. This isn't right. This isn't just. I can't do the things that I want to do for your kingdom because I can't move. I can't study the way that I want to study because I can't sit in a chair. I can't go and, and minister to the teenagers and I huddle because I can't move. I'm supposed to go to Africa in three weeks, Lord. Like, what is this? And there's this sense of entitlement in me that comes exploding out, thinking how in the world could a good God do this to a good man, right? And I begin to violate and impugn the very character of Almighty God himself. You see, what what's true is I grumble is that I find that grumbling doesn't increase my joy. In fact, grumbling increases my misery. In, in fact, grumbling doesn't make me feel better. Grumbling makes me feel worse. And grumbling attacks the very source of joy, the very source of hope that I have for the future. So this morning, I wonder if there's anyone else here that might confess to being a grumbler. 
I wonder if there's anyone else here this morning that would find that spirit in themselves that begins to turn negative and ultimately perhaps even question the very integrity of God. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. So if you get to Philippians chapter 2, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, God's word says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So if you remember where we left off last week, last week we saw where Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is work out, carry forward the salvation that God has brought into your life and apply it to every area of life that you might mature in the faith, that you might grow in your likeness to Christ, that you might grow in holiness and grow in godliness. And this week, what we see is a specific application of what it can look like to work out your salvation. A specific way that the people of God can carry forward their salvation in their lives and in the life of the church. That at the forefront of Paul's mind is how to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. How to live a life that is worthy of the name that you now have in Christ and to live it out in a way that allows you to think with one mind and live in unity with each other and operate harmoniously in the life of the church. And so what Paul is doing here is really refreshing for all of us that live in a politically correct world that has the tiptoe around the truth. Paul is blunt. Paul just kind of gives us some straight talk to this divided church. Paul says, listen, you want to carry out the gospel? You want to live in unity with one another? You want to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Start by stopping your grumbling. Start by stopping your complaining. Start by deciding that you're going to lay down your negativity, lay down your division and start seeing what Christ is doing in you and in the body through the gospel. That's some straight talk, isn't it? That's, that's real life. Sometimes don't we just need the spokesman of God to speak to us and say, listen, stop it. Stop it. You're complaining too much. Stop it. And that's what Paul is doing. But you see, grumbling is never worthy of the gospel, is it? Grumbling is never worthy of the gospel. There is not a circumstance that can arrive. There is not a situation that you can face. There's not a problem that you can deal with. There's not a hardship that can come that justifies grumbling. Because grumbling is the opposite of the gospel. If the gospel calls us to acknowledge our weakness... If the gospel calls for us to acknowledge our own inadequacies, 
and our own insufficiencies. If the gospel calls for us to lower ourselves beneath the one who actually knows all things, who is actually capable of all things, who is actually good in all things, if the gospel calls us to lower ourselves in submission to him and in an acknowledgement of him, then what the gospel calls us away from is grumbling. Because at the very heart of grumbling is I know better. At the very heart of grumbling is I deserve better. At the very heart of grumbling is I want better and I want better now, not I trust you, Lord. You see, grumbling is the opposite of grace. Grumbling is entitlement and resentment and selfishness. It's attempting to build a coalition to agree with my opinion and my thoughts so that things will ultimately go my way. Grumbling reveals a heart that trusts itself too much and others too little. Grumbling reveals a heart that trusts its own opinions about things, its own thoughts about things, its own desires for things over its desire to hear what the Lord would have over what he would bring, over his contribution to the relationship. It's, it's to put your opinions over the wisdom of the church. It's to put your thoughts over the thoughts of the church. It's to put your preferences over the preferences of the body. We could apply this to marriage. We could apply this to parenting. We could apply this to your work. We could apply this to your school. But to grumble is to believe that you have the answers and that others are just getting in the way of your self-proclaimed brilliance. So grumbling is unbelief, you see. Grumbling is unbelief. Unbelief in the one who actually knows and filled instead with self-belief. See, by using the very words that Paul is using when he uses the word. So, so something that you might not be aware of, but it's, it's really important when we kind of study the scriptures is there's something called the Septuagint, the Septuagint. All right. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation. So the Old Testament was written Hebrew. New Testament is written in Greek. And obviously we're talking about Greek speaking people here in Philippi. Well, they translated all of the Hebrew in the Old Testament into the Greek. And so we get what we call the Septuagint, right? And that's really helpful for us understanding how they interpreted the Old Testament, how they understood it, because we're getting it in their native tongue. And there's a word here that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that I think is really helpful because Paul is calling into the minds of the Philippians, the picture of Old Testament Israel. So in verse in, in Exodus chapter 14, if you're, so, some of you guys are like Old Testament scholars and you're just gonna roll your eyes, but I need you to stay with me here, all right? So like in Exodus chapter 14, you'll remember what happens. God brings the people of Israel up to the Red Sea and the mightiest military in the world is bearing down on them, right? And it's, they're about to slaughter this tiny, formerly enslaved nation of Israel and just wipe them from the map. And it looks like God has brought them out of slavery and into the wilderness ultimately just to let them die. Except what we know happened is that God splits the Red Sea. His people walk across. The chariots begin to chase after them. And God says, nah, not y'all. And crushes them, right? You would think, you would think if there has ever been an opportunity for revival among the people of God, it would be that miraculous, supernatural demonstration of the hand of God and the power of God and the kindness and provision of God, right? Except, except three days, 
three days after this has happened, three days after God has let them walk through the middle of a sea and had the waters crush the opposing enemy, they walk in and they get thirsty. And the water there is bitter. And you know what they say? It says this, see if this sounds familiar. And the people grumbled against Moses. It's the same word. The people grumbled against Moses. They begin to murmur behind Moses' back and talk in the background of all of them that God has just brought us out here to die of thirst, that God has brought us out here and we're in the middle of the desert and we have no water to drink. What are we supposed to do? And do you know what God does? What should God do? When we, when we get filled with the self-entitlement and the self-righteousness and we begin to say, God, you're not good because I'm good and bad things are happening to me. What should God should do is he should smite us from the earth, right? Like if, if I'm God and I've just accomplished this incredible feat and done all of this and within three days, you're questioning my character. I'm thumping you to dust, man. Are y'all with me? And do you know what God does? God tells Moses to take a log and throw it in the middle of the water, the bitter water. And he takes and throws this log in the middle of the bitter water and it turns sweet. And now they can drink. God has provided for them in the sea and God has now provided them with the water that they need. And you would think, you would think you'd say, okay, now I get the idea. Now I say, okay, one, maybe that was an incident, but two, that's a pattern, right? very next chapter, they say this, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now they had survived the Egyptian army and then they had survived their thirst, but now, now they needed a Big Mac. Now they were hungry and they're like, God, God, you're just gonna let us die? God, would you let us go back to slavery? Would you let us go back to Egypt? We would rather have the whip across our backs than we would trust you. And you see what happens is it brought division among Israel, didn't it? It brought division. Here you have Moses trying to do what God had called him to do and he's doing it how? With fear and trembling, right? He didn't even want the job. And the people see God's hand upon Moses and know that God is doing something through Moses. And yet, and yet, they build factions among themselves and say, you're gonna have to either choose to go with us back to Egypt or you're gonna have to choose to go forward with Moses. But if you go with Moses, you're gonna starve to death. There begins to, to be this division, not just between them and Moses. You have to re realize Moses represented God to the people. God, Moses spoke to the people on behalf of God. So when they come against Moses and they separate from Moses and lose hope in Moses, it is not really that they're losing hope in Moses. It is that they are grumbling against the Almighty. So what they decide is they, they need to take matters into their own hands. Their grumbling was the result of not getting what they wanted the way that they wanted it, when they wanted it. And so what they decide is we're going to take matters into our own hands. If God will not provide for us, we will provide for us. If God will not do for us, we will do for us. If God will not give us something to drink, we'll go to where we know there is water. If God will not bring us food, we will go to where we know that there is food. We know what God has said, but we see what we see and we disregard now what God has said. See, at the heart of grumbling is a spirit of self-reliance. The heart of grumbling 
is the spirit of self-reliance. It is to trust your opinion most, your desires most, to prioritize your preferences most. It is to forsake the good of others and to deny the goodness of God. And brothers and sisters, this I must confess to you is what I find in my own life. You'll notice there's a second word there, right? That, that do not grumble or question, it might say in your translate, or, or have this disputing among you, right? Because that's what grumbling leads to. It leads to disputing. It leads to questioning, questioning the integrity of others, questioning the motives of others, trust, uh, questioning the faithfulness of God in your own life. And that's what I find in mine. God, how in the world could you let this happen to me? God, why can't my health just level out? Why can't I just feel like the other men my age? God, why can't I just do these things with my family? God, why can't I just be left alone for a little while? God, 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 God. And at the heart of every single one of them is God, this isn't going my way. God, this isn't what I want. God, this isn't my plan. God, this isn't my will. So since it's not my plan and it's not my opinion and it's not my thoughts, you're wrong. You're wrong. Lord, I need you to follow me for a little while. I need you to go my way for a little while. See, the question comes is when we face these opportunities for grumbling in our lives, whether it be at home or in the life of the church, whether it be in our personal walk with the Lord or perhaps even something that we face at work, the question comes when these opportunities arrive, what comes spilling out of us? Does grumbling come spilling out? Do you spill over with the need to be proven right and the need to be validated? Do you spill over with taking matters into your own hands by eroding the reputations of others and impugning the character of God? Or do you spill out the gospel? Do you spill out the gospel? Do you spill out love for your brother and deference to the wisdom of others? Do you spill out trust that God is working over all things and through all things and in all things that they might work out for your good and for your glory? You see, brothers and sisters, grumbling reveals an immature faith. Grumbling reveals a faith that isn't fully developed and entrusting themselves to the Lord. And if the goal is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, then the grumbling heart and the grumbling spirit reveals that our heart is not yet fully in submission to the sovereign reign of Almighty God. So this morning, what comes spilling out of you? What comes spilling out of you? Immaturity or maturity? grumbling or the gospel. So what we have in the rest of the text as we begin in verse 15, going to the end of verse 18, Paul, one of the things that I really appreciate about the way he pastors people and the way that he loves people is he doesn't stay negative very long. He never does. Like if you ever see Paul address something really hard or even like you, you even think about the, the letters to the churches at Corinth in which he's addressing a whole lot of things that are really hard and really wrong. He, he, he addresses those things that need to be addressed, but then he goes positive, right? He goes positive. He goes for the purpose of not crushing their spirit, but ultimately exhorting them forward in the faith and encouraging them forward in the faith. And that's what we see here. That what Paul says, is, says, look, you, you've got this energy, you, you've, you've got these feelings, you've got these emotions, and all of those are valid. 
Like, we, we as Christians don't have to call bad things good, right? We as Christians don't have to all of a sudden live in rainbow unicorn land and think, well, I'm glad that I'm having trouble, you know? Like, I'm glad my job's really taking a toll on me. I'm, I'm glad that I'm facing these hard decisions as a family. You don't have to live like that. Instead, instead, what we are to do is to channel that energy and to channel those emotions in a way that displays faith in God and confidence in God and contributes to the unity of the body, a way that allows us to offer our lives to the Lord as living sacrifices that says, Lord, I don't really get this. Lord, I don't really see this. Lord, honestly, I don't really want this, but I trust you. I trust you. And so he gives us these three alternatives, these three alternatives to grumbling. The first alternative that we see is that you must stand out. You must stand out. If you think about verse 15, verse 15 is really about contrasts. It's really about, it's really about contrasting the church with the world. Let, let's read verse 15 together. It says that you, the church, may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, so Paul's saying that among the church, there ought to be a contrast, that we ought to look different than the world looks, that we ought to think differently than the world thinks, that we ought to react differently than the world reacts, that if we're going to reach the world, we can't look like the world and we can't behave like the world and we can't react like the world and we can't grumble like the world. That as children of God, don't live as the condemned live. As those that have been called to live a blameless and innocent life, don't live as though you blend in with the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. No, you are the light and the light cannot blend in with the darkness. The light pierces and penetrates the darkness to stand out. There is a contrast between the children of God and the world. There is a contrast with the light of the world and the darkness in the world. And that contrast is purposeful. See, there's another, there's another allusion here to Old Testament Israel. In Deuteronomy 32.5, so if, you, if you're familiar with Deuteronomy, what, what's taking place in Deuteronomy is you have Moses kind of giving his final, his final sermon to the people of God. He's, he's preaching the law and he's preparing them to go in and take the, the promised land of Canaan that had long been promised. He'll die before he gets there, but he's preparing the people. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 32.5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Does it sound familiar? Sound familiar? See, here's what he's saying. It looks though, because they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. It looks like God has disowned them, doesn't it? But God hasn't disowned them. They've disowned God. They've disowned God. They began to grumble three days after the miracle at the Red Sea. They grumbled the day after that because they weren't filled enough. They began to grumble as they came to the edge of Canaan and they sent in the spies and the spies said, the people are too big. God has brought us all this way that we might die. You see, the reason, the reason that God had his people enslaved in Egypt is they would have been content to become Egyptians. And the reason that God brings them out and causes them to wander in the desert for 40 years is not because God isn't good. It's not because God isn't able. It's not because God isn't willing. It's because his people weren't ready. His people didn't trust him. 
They were in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation and you couldn't tell them apart. They looked like everybody else looked and acted like everybody else acted. They grumbled in the wilderness like everybody else would grumble as though God wasn't there, as though God wouldn't provide, as though God had not provided, as though God had not promised and proven himself faithful. They lived in unbelief. So what Paul is calling the church to What he is calling us to this morning is don't live and blend in in the midst of this generation. Stand out, stand out, stand out like a light sends out in the dark. Stand out like uh, holy people stand out in the midst of condemned people. Stand out like the children of God that you are, not like the bankrupt orphans running around trying to figure out and find joy and hope in this land. Stand out because of your belief and confidence in the Almighty himself. He's wanting us to stand out in a particular way though. So when he says, when he says, um, uh, when he talks about being blameless and innocent, there's, there's two thoughts. Okay, so both of those revolve around the law. They both revolve around the law. The idea is that the life is conformed to the law of God in a way that, they, that you can bring the law into and lay it beside them and they are blameless beside it. They cannot be accused by it. They are irreproachable in terms of the law. And innocent, innocent isn't just an outward life like blameless conformed to the law. Innocent means an inward heart that is delighting in the law, an inward heart that loves the law, an inward heart that wants the law. So what, what he's talking about is being be an aligned person, a person that is in total alignment with the law of Christ, a person that is obeying the law and a person that wants to obey the law, a person that is living faithfully and living faithfully because they love to live faithfully. See, there's these these distortions of the truth in the church and there's these distortions of the gospel that are in the world that on one hand, the Christ came that we don't ever have to worry about anything that we did again, we do again. Or on the other hand, that Christ came and there's a whole bunch of laws and if you want to be a Christian, you got to follow all the rules. Neither of those are the truth. See, the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant is this, that Christ came to make the law doable by you. Ezekiel 36, I will make you faithful. I will write the law on the tablet of your heart. I will melt your heart of stone. I will circumcise, not the flesh, but I will circumcise the heart. There will be an inward, outward alignment so that now you do what you do because you want to do it. That he will make the law delightful not oppressing to you. That he will make it wonderful for you and not not bondage for you. That he will set free you to live in faithfulness because you want to live as a child of God. In other words, if you'll remember when Jesus is asked in Matthew chapter 22 about which of the law is the greatest law of them all? And he doesn't even hesitate, right? He says, well, I'll give you two. I'll, I'll, I'll do you one better than that. The greatest law is that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is just like it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And remember what he says? Remember what he says? All of the law, all of the prophets, all of it hangs on these two commandments. That these are the pillars that uphold it all. In other words, The people of God, we live differently than the world because we love differently than the world. 
We live differently than the world because we love differently than the world. That's the point. All the commandments of the law hang on these two. Love God, love one another. So obey God because you love God. Don't be divided from one another. Be unified with each other because you love each other. Don't grumble about what you're facing because you love too much. See, brothers and sisters, I think the indictment upon the church from the culture's perspective is that we just don't love very well. We just don't love very well. We say that everything that we are and everything that we do and the entire identity of our existence hangs on loving God and loving one another and we live as though God isn't there and we live as though we don't actually even like each other. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. By the way that you love one another by whether or not you're willing to tie the towel around your waist and wash one another's feet, by the way that you're willing to welcome them into your home, even when it's a night you don't really want to. They will know you because you will be willing not just to live with one another, not just to tolerate one another, but to die for the good of each other, that you would be willing to lay down your own life in the way that I have laid down my life because you love them so ferociously. So he's saying, don't don't grumble. Don't grumble, stand out by the way that you love. Pierce the darkness of this backstabbing, self-advancing, disloyal generation with the light of unity and self-sacrifice and the celebration of others. In a self-obsessed world, stand out by the way that you love others. In a world where church disappointment becomes Facebook gossip, stand out because building up is celebrating and celebrating your church family. This morning, church family, I wonder, I wonder, do you stand out? Do you stand out? Are you, by the way that you love and the way that you live and the way that you serve, are you casting a vision of the gospel to our community? Are we offering them hope by the way we are bound to each other? The second alternative that he gives us to grumbling is to stand firm, to stand firm. Verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So in verse 16, what he's doing is he's actually continuing the thought of verse 15. And he's kind of showing us how it is that as blameless and innocent children, how this comes about and the effect that it ultimately has. He says that we are to be blameless and innocent children in the midst of a crooked generation by, by holding fast to the word of life and to the effect of life, that the word is going to bring life into our our church and the word is going to bring life into our marriages and the word is going to bring life into the midst of our families that even though we live in a dry and weary land, even though these dead bones used to lie down flat, that the word of life comes to us and breathes life to us and then provides us a fountain thereafter to continually, daily, moment by moment, supply us with life and supply us with grace and supply us with the encouragement that we need to press on. Uh, some of you have that testimony, don't you? You just think some days I'm, if, if I wake up tomorrow like this, I'm just over. Like it's just done. Like I'm just, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm giving it all up. And then what happens? You wake up the next morning, things haven't changed, but your spirit is renewed. Your spirit is renewed and you don't quit. 
And you get to the end of that day and you think, if it's like this tomorrow, I just might quit. I just might throw in the towel. And you wake up the next morning and circumstances haven't changed, but your spirit is renewed and you're able to persevere another day because his mercies are new every single morning. Weeping may tarry the night, but joy comes in the morning. Sufficient for its day is its own troubles, but God's grace comes to us, supplies us through his word, breathing life into the midst of these dry and weary bones. You know, there's something interesting that happens. Have you ever thought about why is it, why is it that Christians and churches begin to loosen their grip on the word of God? You ever wondered about that? If I'm honest with you, I find times in my own life in which I'm doing that. If I confess to you, I can can say that there are times in my life in which I know what God has said and I know what God wants and it's not what I want and I begin to loosen my grip. Do you know why we do that? Because we believe it's gonna be better for us. We believe it's going to be better for us. The reason that people abandon their families out of the clear blue sky is they believe that abandonment will bring happiness. That's why. The reason that suddenly someone can be walking with the Lord in pursuit of the Lord and then dive headfirst into sexual infidelity is because they believe it's going to be better for them. That's the only reason. We believe, we convince ourselves that if I can just loosen my grip a little bit, if I can just, if I can just say, okay, God, I'm going to take all of this, but I'm just going to, I'm going to fudge on this one a bit, then our lives will have more joy that our joy, our lives will have more hope. And what we see today in our, is really the accumulation of something that's happened over the last 150 years as the church has wrestled. How do we reach the enlightened man? How do we reach the people that no earth can't possibly be the result of God speaking over seven days? Or how do we reach the man that knows that virgins can't give birth? And so slowly and progressively, Christianity has begun to loosen its grip on the scriptures and loosen its grip on the scriptures until ultimately we have so forsaken orthodoxy that it's a different religion altogether. And we've loosened it all in the name of doing what? Of reaching people, of ministering to people, of loving people well and caring for people. And in the midst of caring for people, we now offer them no hope and no authority and no potential for joy. And by loosening our grip on the word of life, we have ushered them unto death. We've ushered them unto death. And so you look, you, you, you look at the mainline denominations and you look at the experiences of churches all across this country and worldwide and what you will see very often are these enormous transcendent cathedrals that are empty museums of what used to be. Because in the same proportion as they loosen their grip on the orthodoxy of God, God loosened his grip on that church and that church died with the very same speed, if not faster. And brothers and sisters, it is not any different in your life than that. It is not any different in your life than that. You begin to loosen your grip on the scripture's teaching on sexual ethics, right? I'm gonna obey everything except this area. And by loosening your grip on the word of life, what do you find? You find that your faith begins to wither. I'm going to accept Jesus' teachings on every single thing in my life except money. 
I'm going to take everything else wholesale except what I know he has taught about money. And you begin to loosen your grip just a little bit. And what you find in your life is that your faith begins to dry up and to wither. You want to loosen his grip on what he teaches about the church or what he teaches about mission or what he teaches about evangelism. And as you loosen your grip, the more you loosen, the more your soul dries out because the word of life has stopped breathing into you. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what Paul is calling us to. The word of God is the word of life. God breathed his very heart into his very word that his word might breathe life into us. Our life in Christ is sustained by his word. The world needs salvation, not speculation. And you need salvation and not speculation. And you can rest assured that when a church gets to the place where they stand in the back hallways and say, well, I'll tell you what I think. I'll give you my opinion. I'll tell you what I want. I w- what I wish I would see us do. Here's where I think we're going wrong. Well, you see that and we begin to speculate over all of the possibilities rather than working out our salvation and carrying forward our salvation and being united in mission and united in passion and united in worship. You can be certain that that church will surely die. That grumbling, grumbling, is the early tremors of the earthquake of a dying church. And grumbling is the early tremors of a dying Christian. You see, brothers and sisters, if we are to live, if we are to live, I mean really live, I mean flourish and thrive in the gospel, flourish and thrive as the family of God, flourish and thrive in our marriages and flourish and thrive in our relationships and flourish and thrive in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. We must hold fast to the word of life. We must stand firm upon the truth of Christ's firm foundation. We must reject the sandy foundations of this world and we must reject the empty promises of sound reason and enlightened thinking and instead hold fast to the word of life. You see, brothers and sisters, grumbling is contagious, but so is faithfulness. But so is faithfulness. And the Lord will prosper your faithfulness in your household and the Lord will prosper your faithfulness in this life and the Lord will prosper your faithfulness in the church. Not with financial reward, but with sustainable, durable joy. And the final alternative that we see is that we must stand up. We must stand up. We must stand out. We must stand firm. And we must stand up. Says in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. That Paul sees the sacrifice of the Philippian church and he sees the sacrifice of their obedience and the costliness of their generosity and the difficulty of, of being a light surrounded by all of the darkness is how easily they could possibly be overwhelmed. And he says, I see that and I offer my sacrifice to your sacrifice. I want to match your sacrifice so that I can match your joy as the joy that you have brought me, I might bring it to you. 
James Patterson, in one of his novels, he says this, he says, lay down and you'll be ran over. Stand up and you'll be shot at. And brothers and sisters, that has been the experience of the Christian church living in the midst of a dark and crooked and depraved generation since the foundation of the church. The struggles that we face today are not new to us, are new, new to the church, they're just new to us. The, the difficulties and the circumstances and the doubts of faith and the hardships and the, and the discouragements that we know, the depression that we feel and the anxiety that we face, none of that is original to us. It's just new the way that we feel it. Instead, that has been the experience from the foundation of the gospel and the foundation of the church. And as soon as God has brought his people together, see, Paul is alluding to the picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's alluding to the way that they would come and they would offer a sacrifice. And you had the greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of the bull. And they would slit the throat of the bull and they would sprinkle the blood and they would set it on fire and they would burn it until it was completely consumed by the flames. And then as an exclamation point, they would take a lesser sacrifice. They would take a glass of wine and they would pour the wine on the ground around the, around the sacrifice and the ground, the dry ground would drink up and it was an exclamation point on what has happened. It was the finality of the sacrifice that has been offered. And here's what Paul is saying. He is saying, I see your sacrifice and your sacrifice is the greater sacrifice, but we are in this together. And I offer what little I have. I offer what little I can and I pour it out upon you. And I say, your joy has brought, your faithfulness has brought me joy. And I want my faithfulness to bring you joy. So even though I stand here in this prison cell, I offer myself as a living sacrifice that you might have a source of hope. And I see the generosity with which you have provided for me. And I see that as the greater sacrifice. And I want you to know you have brought me joy. We are mutually sacrificial. Oh, but brothers and sisters, being mutually sacrificial, we are mutually joyful, spurring one another on in the faith. You see, you know what the opposite of grumbling is? You want to know what the opposite of grumbling is? Sacrifice. Servanthood. You see, I can grumble that things aren't the way that I wish they were. Or I can say, Lord, use me as a vessel of your glory and your kindness where I am. I can, I can shut down because it doesn't go my way or I can offer my faithfulness to the Lord and confidence in his goodness and say, Lord, I don't see it. Lord, I don't get it. But Lord, I'm going to offer all of myself to you. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to back down. I'm going to sacrifice and serve. See, the point is you can't fight with one another when you're fighting for one another. You can't fight with one another when you're fighting for one another. The antidote to grumbling is to celebrate the sacrifices of another. The inspiration for standing up is to see one standing up beside you. It is to know I am standing, but I'm not standing alone. I'm serving, but I'm not serving alone. I'm sacrificing, but I'm not sacrificing alone. In fact, in fact, there was one far greater, a sacrifice far beyond anything that I can lay down. And he, he stood up for me by lowering himself before the Father, 
that I might be reconciled with God. He stood up for me, being bound and nailed to a cross, spilling out his blood, his precious, righteous blood, down to the ground and surrounding his cross, the dirt, drink up the very life that he gave. And so I see the one who has stood up for me and I, I will stand up for him. I will hold fast. I will be a light in the midst of the darkness. I will serve for the joy of my church and my joy, my church will have joy in me because Christ, Christ has done it. Oh, church, church, stand up for mutual joy this morning. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.